So welcome back to WEMcast. Uh, my name's Will Duffin, and I have the pleasure of welcoming, all the way from Australia, uh, via Zoom, Glenn Singleman. How are you doing, Glenn? Fantastic, Will. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. You're joining us from the New South Wales Victorian border in Albury, I gather. Correct. Yeah, on the uh, in the on the edge of the mountains here. It's a really beautiful part of Australia. And we love Lovely. UK doctors coming down to visit and do a little work. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and I've I've been out there, worked in Gosford for a time in in, in the emergency department there. Great place to, to go. Plenty of pommies out there, staff in the EDs. Yeah, plenty. <laughs> and lovely to work with them too. Yeah, great. And you've had quite a remarkable career, Glenn. So you've had, well, four separate careers, really. You're, you're a medical doctor, an emergency department physician. You're a documentary filmmaker and expedition doctor and also an accomplished wingsuit pilot. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those, you know, the, the, the kind of the new age person, you know, the combination of skills. Everyone's supposed to change jobs seven times in their career. Well, fortunately, medicine is a really good career to fall back on because it gives you, I mean, it's a great career. It's a wonderful thing to be dealing with people, but it also gives you a discipline of mental focus so that if you want to entertain, you know, other creative aspects about your psyche or whatever, you can do that in a kind of scientific evidence-based way. And that's what I've tried to do with all of my other careers. It's been, it has been an expression of my creativity and my passion for living a fulfilled and involved life. Um, but I've always tried to do it with a degree of scientific objectivity so that when I've taken risks in the extreme sport arena anyway, I've always regarded them as uh, acceptable or manageable risks based on my training in medicine. And that's one of the great things about medicine. It gives you that evidence-based objective outlook on pretty much anything you want to do in life. So I gather it was the, in terms of all your risk taking, it was the mountaineering that came first. Is that right? Uh, no, it was actually canyoning came first. There's, canyoning, right. There's these yeah. wonderful canyons in Australia that are like a more than 100 million years old. They were an old seabed that was uplifted and the sandstone over time has been cut through by the creeks and rivers like a knife cutting through butter. And you get these formations that are, you know, 10, 20 metres wide, but, you know, hundreds, potentially hundreds of metres deep. And you go down these formations, swimming through the, the pools, abseiling off the waterfalls. And it, it, the first time I went down one of these things and I had to abseil down a waterfall, I really thought, I'm, you know, I'm going to die. I've, this is it. Yeah. I've bitten off too much here. But... I didn't die. And in fact, I discovered one of those intense involved states that we come to call, I mean, it's come to be known as flow, but it was one of those times when I experienced it and it was a transcendent experience. And I thought, I want to go keep going with this. And, and I realised that the barriers to me doing this kind of stuff or fear. I, I, I'd always been too afraid to go canyoning and 
and I'd always been too afraid to go climbing or skydiving or whatever. And then so I deliberately sort of said, okay, let's break, let's look at what fear is. Let's look at its impact on my life and most importantly how I can use scientific risk management techniques to go beyond the kind of cognitive bias of fear to get back to that uh, enjoyment of the flow state in a sustainable, by sustainable I mean not kill myself, way. And so after canyoning I uh, went into rock climbing and then from rock climbing it's logical to go into mountaineering. And then when I was, I started to do a lot of rope work, filming with using rope work and I was asked by a base jumper if I would film him jumping out of a balloon at 36,000 feet, which I did hanging off a rope on the outside of the balloon, as you do at 36,000 feet, with obviously with oxygen and whatnot. And we got on very well during that project. And at the end of it, I said to him, I mean, in those days, this is back in the early 1990s, most people had never heard of base jumping. And I said to him, you know, where do you want to go with this base jumping stuff? And he said, oh, I, I want to jump off the highest cliff in the world. And I said, well, do you know where that is? He said, no. And I said, do you know how you'll get to the top of it? He said, no. And I, and I had been reading um, a climbing magazine, a UK climbing magazine, the week before, which had a picture of the Great Trango Tower and at the time, they thought that that was the highest vertical cliff in the world. It was talking about the Norwegians who put up the, the Norwegian route. And, and I said to this space jumper, I said, look, I know where the highest cliff in the world is and I, kn I know how to get to the top, the way we can do this. So I'll make you a deal. I'll teach you how to climb and mountaineer if you teach me how to skydive and base jump and together we'll go and climb and base jump this highest cliff in the world and that began a year-long project to train each other in the necessary skills to go and climb the great trango tower and then base jump off the top and that was a like a mind-blowing project at the time. Literally, everybody said, you guys are crazy, you guys are going to die. I mean, absolutely everybody said that. And trying to get funding and sponsorship for, you know, something like that back in those days when literally we got laughed out, laughed out of more boardrooms and offices than I, you know, I can remember. But we eventually got the project up with a lot of sort of personal, well, you know, we put a lot of things on the line and it turned into this incredible success. But the movie that we that I made out of that, a movie called Base Climb, it did, actually it was one of the most successful adventure documentaries ever made because it tapped into people's one of people's most inherent fears, which is the fear of falling. And it not just tapped into it, that fear, but it sort of it mainlined into it and turned it upside down on its head and then shook everybody around. And, uh, and then they came out the other side after we were successful. 
And we were very proud of what we did. Most importantly, we were very proud of the way that we did it because we always believed that we were not just taking risk, but we were managing risk. So I used a lot of the training that I had in medicine in identifying real risk, like real objective risk, as opposed to subjective I mean, many of the risks that people get caught up on in their own lives are subjective risks where they, due to some cognitive bias or other, think that something that they want to do is is extraordinarily dangerous. Like everybody said, you know, everybody I know thinks that when you go base jumping, you jump off the cliff and go splat. Well, it's not, it doesn't happen like that. There is physics involved, physics of acceleration, physics of distance, time, you know, S equals, you know, AT squared onto all of that stuff applies to the, to any adventure or extreme sport undertaking. And if you've got enough of a scientific background to understand physics, then like I actually, during that year of training, I went and did a parachute system technology course at MIT so that I could I mean I had a pretty good idea that parachutes usually open when you follow them but I wanted to know not just that somebody else will tell me that I wanted to know how a parachute opens how you what are the physics that determine the opening and dynamics of decelerator systems and so I went and did a a, a short course in that and that was that was the kind of application, the kind of approach that we adopted to making that film. Now, of course, we didn't have time within the context of that film to put all of that background in. So you just see us make these progressions in the film that a lot of people just thought were outrageous. You know, like in one scene, the, the guy that I was training with, you know, he's learning to rock climb and in the next he's, you know, climbing a 6,000-metre mountain in the Himalayas. Uh, and for the, the 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 tyranny of documentary filmmaking is that you compress a year into an hour, and so we were fairly roundly criticised when we made that film. I mean, the film came with multiple health warnings. Um, we we won an or I, I won an award in the Trento mountain film festival and the judges felt it necessary to issue a press release with a warning about you know don't do this at home <laughs> as if people are going to base jump you know off the, their dining room table and die or something like that it was just but that was the the time and it's been interesting for me to look back over the last 20 years and see how extreme sport has evolved and exploded yeah. And and just changed the way, not only the way that we view sport, but the way that we view risk, the way that we view human performance, the way we view what's possible. So, I, yeah, the adventure sports industry really exploded in the. I mean, I was just being born in the eighties, and you were you were you were part of this this explosion in, in adventure sports of which base jumping w was a part and it, a huge critique that was leveled at it at the time and still is, is that this is just irresponsible risk taking. H how do you respond to that? So you could level that 
criticism at all extreme sport because one of the, I guess, fundamental uh, background attributes of extreme is that there's the potential for injury and death. Otherwise, it would be, you know, non-extreme would be cricket. (laughs) Mind you, I mean, not that cricket's not without risk, but um, the thing about the extreme part of extreme sport is that because it involves risk, it's a pathway, like a direct pathway to activating that peak performance state that, you know, uh, Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. But this flow state, it's well described throughout history. People who undertake any risk risky activity or find themselves in a life-threatening situation suddenly find that they can tap into this level of enhanced performance and that time seems to slow down and that we become totally involved in what we're doing and we perform way beyond what we thought were our limits and that's I mean, that was described by Byron, it was described by Livingston and Stanley. I think Livingston was attacked by a lion. It was, and it's been described countless times, but it's only in recent times through the work of Six N Mihai that we've actually been able to codify what this flow state really is and understand its connection to peak human performance. And we, you know, back in 1991, when we jumped off the Great Trango Tower, we went any sort of base jumping, really, any extreme skydiving, it's all mountaineering, rock climbing for me. It's like an instant access into this flow state where you are so concentrated on what you're doing, that all of the trivia and paraphernalia of day-to-day life just falls away. Who cares about the mortgage repayments and, uh, you know, and whatever else is going on and, you know, what, what politicians are yabbering on? None of that stuff matters because you are totally involved in the moment and understanding the the capability, the capacity, the possibility of human existence as opposed to just the mundrum, the, you know, ho-hum kind of day-to-day pursuit of longevity. And so, yes, there is a risk. I accept that extreme sport, all extreme sport comes with a risk, but it comes with this incredible reward, this reward of accessing the flow state. And that reward, once you've tasted it, once uh, once you've, you know, bitten into that, you know, mouthful of life, then it's... It's an addictive state, I guess. You want to go back yeah. for more. But in my case, I wanted to go back for more while not killing myself. Um, I accept, yeah. I understood, the medical part of me understood really well the degree of the risk that I was taking. And so I always thought that I 
managed risk in a responsible way, responsible for me. I mean, this is an individual choice and it's an individual decision that we all make. And the fact that I'm still alive after 20 years of doing this stuff, I guess, is a testament to the, well, the scientific approach that I've tried to take in uh, in taking, taking, managing, in undergoing, undertaking all of these different projects. And the most, I guess, spectacular example of that was that particular project, jumping off that cliff. And because it really put us out there in the public realm in terms of it was, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of emails and letters and 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 faxes remember the days of faxes that I got from people just saying what an irresponsible idiot I was and as a doctor I should know better and you know blah 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 it just went on and on and on and on for years because that documentary I think it's been seen something like 700 million people saw that doco so you know for years I'd be getting you know, letters or emails from, you know, out of Botswana from somebody who just saw it yeah. for the first time, you know. Amazing. It, it It's fascinating that I think a, a lot of people write off at, uh, extreme sports athletes as being adventure junk, uh, adrenaline junkies. And it's all about the rush of it, a dopamine, dopaminergic rush of it, of adrenaline. But there's something much, much deeper there. This, this concept of flow that that you reference. Yeah, I mean, so it was well described yes. by Maslow, who talks about um, peak for peak. Perf- he talks about um, finding our purpose in life as being the ultimate meaning of our lives, finding purpose, finding meaning, finding understanding of who we are, what we're capable of. And extreme sport is a kind of way to, and he, I mean, Maslow talked a lot about these peak performance moments that people keep referencing. And so extreme sport is a way that dials everybody in immediately into that peak performance that flow state because you have, so for you it's a gateway to flow it is an absolute gateway to flow and that i mean it's really worth reading all the stuff that both um, 6m mihai and stephen kotler in his book rise of superman what they have to say about how human performance our understanding of human performance is being changed radically altered by extreme sportsmen and women because they are surpassing the traditional boundaries of human performance in in every extreme sport that there is. The records just keep falling and the limits just keep, um, you know, being pushed out and out and out. And that's because people have to take uh, risk. They have to access these total involvement flow states and it's a really exciting thing yeah i I, like you i have experienced flow as well i've never i've never jumped off uh in a a cliff in a wingsuit but i don't think you necessarily have to do that to experience flow um i've but it, it is an incredible feeling and for me it's it's that loss of uh that the inner critic is silenced you're you almost become you go outside of yourself don't you and you feel uh things happen without conscious effort. You you just enter this state where you can just perform without trying. You're just allowing uh, your body to perform this rehearsed set of 
uh, of movements. And it's just, it's just such a, a powerful state to be in. But though, for those people out there that, that aren't into uh, adventure, extreme sports, how could they experience flow? So, um, I mean, people who flow, Six M Mihai talked about uh, people experiencing flow in most creative pursuits. You know, artists who get totally involved in the artwork that they're doing and then create this masterpiece and think, oh, where did that time go? How did that, who painted that? That's a classic expression of creative flow. People who get involved in anything that they really, really love and are really passionate about, and that involves risk. And let's face it, if you're in the artistic sector and you're creating something, some form of personal passion that you're putting on public display, that's a risk. That's one of our most innate, primitive fears, the fear of making fools of ourselves in public. So creative pursuits is... Uh, as be, there's a lot of examples of flow in creativity. I think there's also a lot of pursuits, uh, examples rather, in people who are passionate about anything because anything that you really, really love to do, then that's usually about activating the flow state. You know, entrepreneur, you hear, entre, I've heard a lot of entrepreneurs talk about how, you know, how they took risks and how they did this and they did that and when listening when you listen to what they they got out of it on an emotional level then they're talking about flow when you look at the like this distinction between explorers and extreme sports people i i don't go for that distinction because if you read the works of the great explorers like if you read what shackleton's saying about what he got out of emotional he was there because he was getting into the flow state. And most explorers are getting into the flow state. And yeah, they love to say we did it because we wanted to fill in the blanks on the map or we wanted to, you know, free the, you know, whatever they wanted to do. There's always a kind of in traditional exploring in the, uh, in the geographical societies around the world. There's this, you know, well, why, you know, why did you, you, you had some ulterior higher purpose to do what you did? And when you go base jumping and like it's right, it's, and actually it's a, a gesture like this to all of exploration because what explore, there isn't any exploration of the physical environment. There is exploration of the mental environment. And there is, it is like an explosion in terms of exploration of the inner, the inner sanctum, the innermost soul of who we are boom straight in there that's what base jumping that's what extreme sport allows us to do and that's why i get annoyed by uh, you know the the geographic societies poo-pooing extreme sports because they all everybody wants this state it is an expression of not just our creativity but it's an expression of, of our fundamental self who we are and for some of it it's through extreme sport but for many others it's through art it's through music it's through being a, an entrepreneur the only thing that's a dud is the people who want to get that uh, state through artificial chemicals through drug taking that is a dud and that's a false example of flow 
but pretty much everything else that we can get really involved and passionate about, I think that's tapping into that state of flow. Yeah, incredible. And uh, basketball players talk about this a lot, don't they? They talk about going into this state of being unconscious when they're playing and they're just performing at this peak level. Uh, They're just killing it on the court without even trying. Every traditional sports team is now looking to extreme sport athletes to say, well, how do you you get that peak human performance? And it's about, you know, how do you get into that flow state? Yeah. And so it's, it's fascinating that you found flow through your extreme sports, through that risk taking. And it's also been a gateway for a, a journey into yourself, to, to discovering more about how you function. Have you been able to translate that into your medical practice? Have you been able to say find flow uh, during a busy ED shift? Yeah, well, I have to. Um, I have to now because there. Medicine has changed so much over the last 20 years in terms of its evolution of knowledge and it's also its evolution of evidence-based principles. So we as medical practitioners all have to access, deliver, we have to, we have to be peak performers all, all day, every day. It's, and it's often really mentally taxing to do that unless you can ignite an internal passion for it and an internal involvement. And I, I mean, I've come to know and understand flow enough that I try to deliberately activate that even when I'm looking at, you know, yet another stubbed toe. Oh, you stubbed your toe. Oh, how did you do that? You know. <laughs> Whatever. I, um, I mean, it's it's obvious it's there when you get, you know, when you get that bat phone call and someone's coming in and a car, you go, bang, you're in the state, you're you're zoned in. But to kind of activate it with all of the, the trivial day-to-day stuff, that's a bit of a challenge. But it's, a cha- it's something I'm getting better at because I found that extreme sport made me... Well, I believe it made me a better person. It made me a more resilient person. It made me a more appropriately confident person, not uh, not arrogant, but confident in terms of my emotional state. It made me more self-efficient, much more self-efficient. And it made me understand what, courage is and what courage is not and we all when we're truly passionate about something we we all have to find I believe find courage and find commitment and all of those things that I found in extreme sport they've come back to I believe make me a, a better doctor and so that I I think I've always said that Every expedition I've been on, an external expedition, an adventure, is a metaphor for an internal journey. The true value of what is going on is the internal journey. It's about discovering parts of your own psyche that you didn't know existed. And that if you allow yourself to be excited and inflamed by that, that's a really 
um, enlightening experience. Um, I would like to talk for a moment of just in a bit more depth about just a couple of the expeditions and adventures that you've had. There's there's so many that we could talk about, but let's let's have a look at the trip that you did with your wife a few years ago. You spent three months in the Indian Himalayas climbing Mount Meru. Tell us uh, tell us what happened. So my wife heard me say many times that anybody who could control their fear and follow a sensible, rational, scientific process, anybody who could do that could jump off the highest, base jump off the highest cliff in the world. And I used to say that, you know, to, to audiences and everyone would laugh, like, Glenn, you know, you're crazy, you idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. But my wife heard me say that many, many times. And finally, one day, somebody came to me and said, oh, look, Glenn, you think you jumped off the highest cliff in the world when you jumped off uh, the Great Trango Tower? You didn't. There's a cliff that's higher. It's called Mount Meru in the Garwal Himalaya in India. And I was telling my wife this story and she said, uh, here's your chance to prove your theory that anybody could do this stuff. Train me and together we'll go and climb and base jump off Mount Meru. Now, you have to understand that at that time, my wife was not into extreme sport and in terms of a set of physical skills. And she had to learn. It actually took six years for her to learn the physical skills. She had to learn to rock climb, to mountaineer, to skydive, to base jump, to wingsuit skydive, to wingsuit base jump because... Wingsuits had just come out when we got this idea to do this. And so we just thought, well, wouldn't it be much better to fly off the highest cliff in the world rather than just jump off it? So we spent six years training together so that we could go and climb Mount Meru. It's about 21,000 feet, 6,000 uh, it's over 6,000 metres. And um, and then when we got to the top, we put on our wingsuits and, and flew off this ledge at the top of a 2,000, an 800-metre sheer vertical cliff. And we, I mean, it, it, did, it did set a world record. I mean, Heather broke my world record that I'd sent on set on um, on the Great Trango Tower. But more than that, it was an opportunity for us as a couple to explore explore dimensions in our relationship that most people never ever, most couples never ever get to go where we went. Quite. I mean there's many couples out there that are exploring shared interests like uh, salsa dancing or yoga. And your wife, uh, you and your wife are doing, uh, uh, combining the disciplines of, of high altitude mountaineering and wingsuit jumping. I just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get to see, yeah. you get to see strengths and weaknesses, but you also yeah. get to see the other person going into those flow states you get to share 
I mean, they talk now, there's a lot of research going on about shared flow states in, in, you know, work environments, in team sport environments, where everybody performs beyond their own, what they thought were their own personal limits, but the team becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And so Heather and I, when we when we finally, after six years of training, were able to climb and wingsuit base jump off Mount Meru, we entered the zone together and it was a special part of of not just a physical landscape but an emotional landscape that only the two of us have ever been to. No one's ever repeated what we did and and we have this special memory and the interesting part of that is that in hindu mythology mount meru is the center of the universe so from a myth from a mythological point of view we went to the center of the universe but that was really a a, a metaphor for we went to the center of ourselves we we together went to the center of our our being our, our souls if you like it was a, an, wow. an incredibly special experience yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. Um, so for many of our listeners may not be familiar with what a wingsuit is as, a, as an evolution out of skydiving and base jumping. It, it's the, the kind of next level on from that. Can you describe what, what, what a wingsuit is and, and what does it feel like to fly through the air like a bird? So wingsuiting, wingsuit skydiving is, is an evolution of of normal skydiving. It actually took about 70 or people tried to build wingsuits for about 70 years. And until a guy, a French guy called Patrick de Gardion built the first one, everybody who tried it died. There, because when you're skydiving, you, you're traveling at, you know, about uh, 200 k's an hour at terminal velocity and if you have anything hanging off you, that profoundly it can send you into a spin. It can flip you over. Anything that um, changes your presentation to the air and the way that you flow through the air can affect your stability. And that's what everybody who before Patrick de Guardian, that's what they all died from. Patrick had a profound insight that the way to build a suit that was had wings under the arms and between the legs was to have openings into the suit so that the suit was a ram like a ram air parachute and when you go when you fly one of these suits they have openings on them that allows the airflow to enter the suit and the suit is a, a closed container and so when the air is rammed into the front of it 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 assumes the shape that it's built in. And if you build it like a wing, you've got a wing under your arm and a wing between your legs, then it acts like a wing. And so instead of falling out of a plane and going straight down, these things are gliders and they have a gliding, well, they used to have a gliding ratio of about three to one, three metres forward for every one metre down, but that's improving all the time. So now they're, they're up around the four to one, the really high performance suits. So, but you fly, you're wearing these things and you have to fly your body. So 
do you have to maintain a lot of tension in your body to obviously your arms become the wings your your, your trunk is the fuselage does that require a lot of uh, of core strength and control to i mean birds human shoulders are not nearly as strong as bird shoulders so we it does require a lot of strength and the limit now i mean the suits are getting more and more powerful and they're approaching the limits of what people can actually hold in the suit so um they're, they're the latest machine the latest versions of wingsuits are incredibly incredibly high performance pieces of technology but the sensation of being in a wingsuit is just like you imagined when you were a kid you imagined flying it's just like that you fly your body you dip one shoulder and you turn you know you turn in that direction you lift up your legs and or you change your leg let you you can do everything that you imagined that you could do when you were a kid by altering the shape of your body it is personal human flight you are interacting with the environment you're not in a you know an aluminium steel or you know wooden wire constructed thing called an aeroplane you are the aircraft and you are flying. That's, that's an, it's wow, a, incredible purity to it uh, there is yeah and in i mean I have to say that every time I get into that suit and get out of the plane, I'm in the zone. I'm in that flow state straight out the door. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> bang, you know, instant yeah. switch on. Yeah, yeah. And what's going through your mind when you're stood at, at, the, at the top of the world's highest cliff on, the, on, the, on, the, on Mount Meru and you're looking down into the abyss, you're there with your wife, Heather, and you're, you're thinking about, John, what's going through your mind? How do you prepare to, to, to do something like that in your head? For me, the more important thing is what went through my mind before I got there. What sort of preparations did we have in place what sort of judge what sort of technology have we got what sort of judgment have we used what are the weather conditions around us you make all of those decisions before you actually well usually when you're standing just back from the edge of the cliff and though you make those in a rational objective way yes this cliff is vertical i mean i stood we stood there on the edge of mount meru and dropped off big you know, rocks and hunks of ice, and we counted how long it took before they hit anything. And, you know, it was about 14 seconds. So we knew just from, you know, physics that we were looking at an absolutely sheer wall of, you know, a couple of thousand feet, 800 metres. Then we knew that we had the technology because we had used that same technology countless times out of a plane, and we did lots and lots of training together in Arco in Italy, where there's a, a one, Mount Monte Brento is a four and a half thousand foot cliff that we, you can drive to the top of it. And we we went up there and jumped that cliff together time and time and time and time and time and time, and time again, practicing every element of that particular launch that we were going to do off that particular cliff. So we knew we had the technology, we knew we had the training, we we knew that we had the weather. I mean, we were kind of lucky with the weather because when we first got up there, the whole mountain was covered in cloud and we couldn't, you can't jump in cloud in a wingsuit because clouds have got really big rocks in them in the Himalaya. 
but we waited and this and wait after waiting for we waited about four hours we got a clearing in the cloud and there was hardly any wind and the cloud just lifted and there was our landing site you know a couple of kilometers <clears throat> down the the valley in front of us and then once we'd we knew that everything was right in terms of environment, in terms of technology, and in terms of our personal training, we committed. And then when we committed, that's when we stepped up to the edge. And then it was about uh, being involved with that commitment to actually do what we had intended and trained ourselves to do. And that I mean, often that's the scary part, but we'd done those exits so many times that once we had used our judgment and said, yeah, we have the knowledge, skills and equipment to do this, we just committed and did it. And the moment that we we, we go through this countdown, you know, ready, three, two, one, go. And... When we do that, it's like we um, enter into that zone of peak performance. And in that zone, there's just, there isn't, there's just involvement. I remember you can see things clearer. You, your thought processes are going much faster. You, you time slows down. You, it's a, you, you sort of lose this sense of self because we were just part of this environment, and to be part of a spectacular environment like the like Mount Meru and the glaciers around there was, I mean, to be truly part of it was, uh, I mean, it's a feeling that's very difficult to describe how. Um, how profound that really is. Yeah. I mean, for, for all of our listeners that have been up in the mountains and we've all done, we've all peeked over edges and thought, wow, look at that. Look at the, uh, look at the, 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 the air beneath our feet. You know, imagine jumping off that. And then we have the second thought is there's absolutely no way I would ever do that. Uh, but you've been doing that for a living for, for around 20 years or so, Glenn. And, and many people would argue that you're not quite normal, that you're somehow a, a different breed. Is, is there perhaps some kind of genetic basis for your for your your risk-taking and your ability to tolerate that kind of fear and that kind of danger? Yeah, there's some really interesting research about that. Uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s, Marvin Zuckerman from the University of Delaware described a describe the D4DR gene on chromosome 11, which is linked to sensation-seeking behaviour, the so-called thrill-seeking gene. And uh, Professor Zuckerman developed a, a questionnaire, a, sc a scale, and what he was able to do was to identify, this scale identifies high sensation seekers and low sensation seekers, and he found that this correlated very well with the number of copies of the D4DR gene that you have on chromosome 11. So you can have between 2 and 11. And people who have two copies are low sensation seekers and probably working in administration. 
and people who have 11 copies, they're the ones like me who, and my wife who jump off Himalayan mountains with wingsuits. And interestingly, I had the test done. We, my wife and I both uh, were involved in some brain development research at the Westmead uh, Brain Development Centre. And sure enough, we've got 11 copies of this uh, particular gene. And the actual gene, it codes for the sensitivity of the dopamine receptor in the central nervous system. So our dopamine receptors with 11 copies, our dopamine receptors are less sensitive to dopamine. So to actually get, and dopamine being the, the sort of the feel good part of the brain, to get that to feel good, we have to release more dopamine. And so to release more dopamine, we have to get involved in more high sensation seeking activities. And the interesting thing that's coming out now is the connection between the between you know dopamine <clears throat> dopamine and norepinephrine or noradrenaline in our brain and the the flow state these seem to be the chemical mediators of the actual flow state so we people like heather and i who have got 11 copies of this d4dr gene we have to really flood our brains with dopamine in order for our receptors to actually fire. Wow. So by jumping off at incredibly high places, you are fulfilling your genetic destiny. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's like we are compelled by our genes to behave in this way, and it was—it's interesting. One of the interesting cor corollaries of Zuckerman's research is that he—this was one of the first genetic determinants of behaviour and personality that that was sort of elucidated. And we, as we understand more and more about genes and behaviour, so we're coming to understand that much much more of our behaviour is, uh, I mean, sure, it's influenced by the environment, but it's incredibly uh, influenced by our genetic makeup, things that we thought were, you know, uniquely, uniquely an expression of us are in fact a, 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 just an expression of our genes speaking through our behaviour. It's um, yeah. interesting, very interesting what that means. Yes, and you've you've been to some very high places, but also some very deep places. I understand in the early two thousands you worked with James Cameron, uh, both exploring the Marianas Trench and also the wreck of the Titanic. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, yeah, so once you enter the world of extreme sport and and in well, you know, metaphorical internal exploration you start to find other kindred spirits. And it so happened that James Cameron, the director of, you know, Titanic and Avatar and whatnot, he is a kindred spirit in that he loves to explore the boundaries of his own possibilities. And he really does make films like Hollywood films. He makes that as a way to fund his real passion, which is uh, exploration, both physical exploration of the mostly the underwater environment, but also exploration of his own psyche. 
And so yeah. it was natural that Jim and I should get together and he's invited me to go on um, three, four, a few expeditions with him now um, in, you know, ostensibly in my role as a, as a doctor, as an expedition doctor. I mean, it's a very handy ticket to have to be an expedition doctor. You get to do some really cool things um, as a little plug for expedition medicine courses all over the world. Um, and, and Jim invited me to go on an expedition, you know, another expedition to the Titanic because the Titanic is dissolving. It's being eaten by iron-digesting bacteria so that in about another 10 years, most of the decks and a lot of the superstructure of Titanic will be gone. And in about another 30 years, Titanic will probably be a fairly big mound of just rust or iron oxide on the bottom. So Jim wanted to make another documentary going deep inside the wreck, filming parts with, with, with ROVs, filming parts of the wreck that hadn't been seen since it sank in 1912. So uh, that was an incredible project to be involved in and I was lucky enough to actually go down to the wreck and, and you know, help on some of the filming stuff. But one of the things that, you know, is mind-blowing, uh, well, it's mind-blowing being, being 12,500 feet, more than 4,000 metres under under the surface of the ocean just you know it's it the pressure even at the titanic is like having a a car stacked onto your wrist so the technology to withstand that you've got to be inside a big steel sphere that's about six inches thick and to withstand that kind of pressure and the, the technology to do that was just incredible. But when you get down, the thing that you can't grasp when you go down to the Titanic is the size of the thing because, you know, we've all seen pictures of it and, you know, you've seen it in the movies and whatnot, but nobody get until you go there, you don't understand that it is Titanic. It is like a 10-storey high building, you know, down there on the bottom of the ocean. And as you come along in this little sphere that you're in looking out this little porthole and you look out on the, the bottom of the ship and then the, 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 the submersible we were on started lifting up and 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 you're just going past twisted, bent, you know, decks that have been crushed and squashed and weird shapes of metal that, are, you know, where the ship was torn in half and, and you just keep, keep going up and up and up and up and up and up and it's 10 stories high and you just... Wow. Like it's you get to the top like wow that is big you know it's a it, it, it's an incredible wreck and to just that's one of the the greatest things about actually going down there was experiencing the if I can say this experiencing the Titanicness of the Titanic you know that it's an incredible um, incredible thing and then you know because we were successful with that. At the end of that, you know, we were all shooting the breeze and and somebody said to Jim, you know, oh, you know, what do you want to, uh, where do you want to go with this underwater exploration stuff? And he, you know, straight away said, I want to go to the Mariana Trench to repeat the dive that Don Wash and Jacques Picard did back in 1960. Um, I want to do that because it is the holy grail of underwater exploration. 
So I was privileged to be involved in the team that developed the technology over seven years in a little warehouse in inner city Sydney that this technology took Jim all the way 12,000 metres down, you know, 37 feet, 37,000 feet. The pressure there is like having a freight train, not just a car, but a freight train stacked onto your wrist, um, 16,000 pounds per square inch of pressure, 1,600 atmospheres. So we, a small team of us, Jim hand-selected, about 50 people from all over the world to come together. And I was privileged to be involved in developing the life support or helping develop the life support system and then going on the expedition to help look after everybody out there. I didn't get to go in the submersible um, because it was basically only Jim went down for that one particular dive. But the technology, like, yeah, it was a great physical achievement but it was an even bigger mental and psychological achievement because that that dive done back in 1960 by uh, Don Walsh and Chuck Picard, it was like everybody thought that that was the limit of human possibility in terms of deep ocean exploration. Then it would never be repeated again because all of the resources of the US Navy went into making that happen in 1960. And yet here was a guy with, sure, deep financial pockets, but he put it together with a small, dedicated, fearless team who uh, showed that it was possible for a private individual to do this. And that was kind of a... that open the floodgates as often happens with you know breakthroughs in extreme sport or extreme any extreme undertaking once this the mental barrier is shattered then a whole lot of new things uh, happen and the interesting thing about we did them uh, we did the mariana trench thing into with jim in 2012 in 2019 just seven years later, I again was the doctor on Victor Vescovo's expedition, the um, Five Deeps expedition, to take a submersible, a larger submersible made out of titanium. Victor took that to the five, the deepest point in the five oceans. And yeah, the Mariana Trench was was just one of, you know, a one of five. And it was a vehicle so well constructed, so well designed that it went <clears throat> five times to the bottom of the Mariana Trench in 10 days. It has opened and it's got commercial certification. So it's opened up the whole of the bottom of the ocean for exploration. This vehicle is commercially certified to go anywhere, anywhere on the ocean floor anywhere and that has never been like that's a that's a mind-blowing scientific exploration concept that we now have a vehicle that can go anywhere that's never been the case in all of human history and you know 70 percent of the of the planet's covered in water so the possibilities are just you know we like to think we know a little bit our, uh, about our world we only know about 30 percent of our world and the rest of it yeah we, we, yeah and the, the it's said that we know more about space than we do about the deep ocean yes that's what they say we know a lot about the deep ocean though 
I mean, I mm. was privileged to meet some incredible and work with incredible scientists on on Victor's uh, and Jim's expeditions. I mean, there there are some really interesting things going on in deep ocean research. And this is, I mean, watch this space because the possibilities are absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, we saw video of things that, you know, that Victor saw down there that, you know, there aren't even names for the things that the species that we saw. Just incredible. The possibilities are incredible. So those sound like a pretty good series of gigs for an expedition medic. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a tough one. I mean, but someone had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and were you busy medically on 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 board the the ships supporting those trips? You know, with all of these trips, it's about to me. It's about the preparation. The busy period is before the expedition. If you're busy on the expedition, then you haven't done enough preparation, I believe. Right. Unless something catastrophic happens, like you you're at Everest Base Camp when the avalanche hits which friends of mine were, you know, that it's very difficult to, to do enough preparation for a natural catastrophe like that. But on a controlled environment expedition like a deep ocean research thing, um, it's very tempting to take a hospital, but you can't fit a hospital on the ship. So you have to have a good understanding of what you're likely to encounter and, you know, because common things happen commonly, so what are the common things that happen in marine medicine? You know, so I've done a lot of work on on different environmental, um, you know, medical response to environmental situations. And that's, you know, stood me um, in really good stead on pretty much every expedition I've been on. The more I find, the more work I can do in preparation, the more I can understand the environment, the more I can understand the personalities and the psychology and the makeup of the people involved and also their, you know, physical limitations. I mean, every we've all got, you know, little things that are a problem, can be a little problem down here, but at high altitude or deep ocean, they can be a huge problem. So and the more that you that I find that I research all of that stuff before I go, the, the smoother things run when we actually get out there into those extreme environments. So that seems to be a thread that's run through all of your, uh, all of your work, this concept of, of preparation. And one thing we teach in our courses is that piss poor performance uh, is predicted by poor preparation. Uh, and it's great to see you embody that, Glenn. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so the the big thing of the moment is this global pandemic and it would be useful I think to for our listeners to talk a little bit about that and I hope we can do that without using the term unprecedented yes um, so tell me a little bit about what's what's going on in Australia at the moment what's the what's the vibe on the ground uh, in your country and, and in your emergency department so we Comparatively speaking, we're um, geographically lucky in Australia because we're an island, we're isolated, and uh, there's a big moat around us, and we're a small population with a large country, though, and we were also very proactive. I mean, I really have to give credit to the government for getting, for listening to evidence-based medicine and scientific advice 
and undertaking what were, when they first came out, unpopular measures, you know, the measures of social isolation, the measures of closing down um, many of the businesses, the measures of um, and enforcing those, uh, those difficult public health measures, they got that right and they got it got in there early. So it looks like we're starting to flatten our curve out by some, I mean, a lot of people think that these are draconian measures and infringe on, on civil rights and all that sort of stuff, but they're just evidence-based, sensible, scientific, you know, pandemic approaches. And because, you know, everybody knows that there's yet, as yet, no vaccine, no cure. So the only prevention is the only thing that, only tool that we've got in the toolbox at the moment. So what I'm impressed about with Australia's response, I mean, there was some hiccups at the beginning, but now that it's kicked into gear and there's, I mean, yeah, there will be economic consequences, but it seems to be paying off in terms of what's happening to the spread of the disease by adopting really rigorous and, and enforced by law social isolation. And, you know, they shut down schools, they shut down businesses, they shut down travel. It's been really, really, um, well, some people say heavy-handed, but I think it's appropriate. I think it's appropriate and evidence-based and guided by um, people who know what they're talking about, you know, yes. people who are experts in, in, uh, in pandemics and, and public health. And so while, you know, there is a lot of fear around, I'm, I'm kind of, this is one of the good things about having done all the extreme sports I've done. I've dealt with a lot of fear. So I am reasonably good at separating subjective and objective fear. And there are some things to be very afraid of with COVID. Um, but there are some things that are part of the media hype and not necessarily appropriate to be afraid of. But And learning to understand the difference between those two fears is something that, you know, like my extreme sport experience has given me and also my medical experience because we are an evidence-based profession. So if we, if we stick with the evidence and keep away from the hype, then we're all better equipped to, I believe we're all better equipped to manage this in the most appropriate way possible. And unfortunately, some countries in the world have not adopted evidence-based approaches and they, we're watching them pay big prices for that. So what I'm pleased about in Australia is that we very early on adopted um, public health measures and at the moment we've got a really good supply of PPE and we've got a really good set of guidelines on how to um, how to use the PPE how to, appropriately how to using how to use the test kits appropriately how to manage the uh, 
the spread of the disease and the sensible allocations of the resources that we have. And um, I've, uh, I'm, I'm a little, you know, everybody's a little nervous, but we're a little bit, uh, we're also encouraged by what's starting to happen to the, the curve of, of the spread of the infection here. And uh, it's a shame that, you know, other, well, the whole world wasn't able to kind of get in front of the spread of the epidemic with more public health, more dramatic public health measures earlier. But, you know, that's kind of what it is. And uh, I've got to say that I'm, I'm quietly um, pleased and quietly confident with, uh, with what's going on over here. Yeah, great. The measures in Australia sound very similar to what's happening in the UK at, at the moment. I mean, many of my colleagues have voiced uh, concern about uh, lack of PPE. They're, we know that health workers are three times more likely to be infected by COVID than the general population. They're worried about infecting their families. They're worried about the uh, the pressure on the health system, the the massive loss of life that, that faces us and the economic fallout after this. Are those any of those fears or that that sense of overwhelm that is being shared in medical circles is that something that you've personally experienced or have you given your background of of uh extreme sports have you do you feel been better placed to be able to to rationalize that and compartmentalize and, and process the, all of that so one of the th- interesting things is to think about history and i mean there have been pandemics but um, that were, you know, some were well-managed, some were not so well-managed. But one of the interesting things that I look at a lot is if you, if you look at the response to or the industrialization response to a catastrophe like, the, like the, the Second World War, there was an incredible response in America in terms of an, an industrial output response and a retooling of, of society and a retooling of industry and that will happen in in America. I mean, the Americans are really good. Uh, I mean, they're a little slow starting, but they're really good at um, coming together to retool their industry and their society around providing what's needed in terms of resources. And that's... Um, you know that I believe that that will mean. I mean, everybody knows we have to have enough PPE. That's it. Everybody knows that, so everybody has got that as a priority. And I'm quietly confident that there is enough industrial capacity in the world to really make sure that all of us have all of the PPE that we need. And if that's the if that's not happening, then, you know, there needs to be political and sort of social um, pressure brought to bear on, on, you know, on the industries that provide those resources that we all absolutely need. And I'm, I mean, all my friends, they've all kind of said, oh, typical, we thought you would be on the front line of this. And yes, I am, but once again, I'm going on that front line into the emergency department, into intensive care, using the the evidence of 
you know, having what good, what good PPE is all about, how to apply good PPE, how to don, how to doff, how to be super paranoid and careful. And to me, that's about that, once again, that same thing I talked about before, the objective managing of risk, not just a blind taking of risk. Because, you know, if you look at our, the Australian society, where we're getting problems is with people not taking on board the advice and just ignoring you know the rules about social isolation and ignoring the rule that the risks that we all know saying oh this is nothing to worry about you know that that kind of attitude gets lots of people killed but if you're well i'm encouraged that that there is this incredible degree of social responsibility that's kicking in and people are listening to the advice people are following these directives understanding that this is you know for the good of society and i'm encouraged by that and i'm encouraged by the evidence that basically um you know if we use as much technology as we can in terms of protecting ourselves it is possible to do and so i'm Extreme, I'm fanatically careful and fanatically paranoid and, and I bug all of my colleagues all the time, you know, about um, what they should be doing with their PPE because, you know, complacency is our enemy in this, in yeah. this situation. Be thinking that, you know, oh, it's, you know, I don't need to change it again. I'm sick of changing out of this stuff. No, we need to change it again and again and again and again. And uh, it is my hope that, you know, I, I mean, we are going to get a vaccine down the pipe. And when that, when that vaccine comes, it'll you know, hopefully that's what will uh, make the difference. But until that actually happens, then, you know, social isolation and PPE is about all we've got. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting how, uh, I suppose, an analogous to the mountaineering and base jumping world, that you are very, you use the word paranoid, but, but very uh, disciplined with checking and trusting your own equipment, your own expertise, the, the evidence base behind what you're doing. Uh, and that perhaps you feel that by doing that, you know, just in the way you check your equipment when you're about to do a big jump or, or apply PPE when you're about to see a patient in, in a COVID ward, do you feel that that really gives you some some courage to go into that situation? That 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 trust that that that, that gives you that you've you've done everything you can to to, to manage. Yeah, risks. it gives me the experience. I guess it gives me the confidence because you know I have. Uh, it sounds melodramatic to say I've put my you know. I've put my life. I've put my life in the hands of technology. You know, so many times. Blah blah. I have though. We, in the context of extreme sport, we've trusted our training. We've trusted our equipment. We've trusted our judgment with our lives, time and time again. And so, yeah, maybe this is another one of those situations. But it does give me a certain level of confidence that. I've done this kind of stuff before and this management technique has kept me alive and I think it will keep me, you know, alive and healthy in this current crisis too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, it's been great chatting to you, Glenn. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Will. It's been an absolute pleasure. Is there uh, any way that people can connect or reach out to you? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, we've in this realm of social media, we've all got websites. We, we've all got films. We've all got books. I mean, our website is baseclimb.com. It's got lots of information about Heather and myself and I mean, it's got a, it's got Heather's story on there, and I find her story, you know, of a. I hesitate to use the word ordinary person who achieves the extraordinary, but her story of transformation is inspirational to, to me, and so, and have, and I think to to many other to many other people. And there's a lot of films that I've been involved with, and they're all kind of there on the website. So if you'd like to have a look. Or contact us, you can contact us through that baseclimb.com. Great. And of course, um, Glenn will be joining us at the annual World Extreme Medicine Conference this autumn in Edinburgh. It's going to be great to to see you in the flesh and um, uh, people will get a chance there to to chat with you and uh, hear a bit more about your story. Yeah, really looking forward to coming to the conference. It's going to be, it's an incredibly exciting agenda and really looking forward to, you know, sharing some stories and inspiration and possibilities with a bunch of like-minded people that's going to be really exciting